just, just so happens to be Father's Day, just so happens that we're in 1 Peter chapter 1, and it just so happens that I'm talking about idiots, morons, and imbeciles, how we change for the better. So I was intrigued. I really was intrigued this, this week. Uh, I listened to a talk. Actually, I listened to it three times. I was so intrigued that suggested that Christians are all stupid. Now, there are various degrees of stupidity, so don't feel bad. Uh, maybe you're not as stupid as you think. But, uh, I, you know, when I think about this from just a relational standpoint, the idea of being stupid, I, I think of all the dumb things I've said and done. You know, can you relate to that? I remember early in our marriage when we had our kids and we would travel with our children. It was so stressful. I would always get upset and filled with anxiety. And, and uh, there would often be a, a fight that would break out between my wife and I and, and always my, my fault. And so when we boarded the plane, I remember this one time, got everybody situated. Um, my wife, Denise, wanted to kind of work things out. And so she kind of launched into what was going on and why we had this conflict. And I was looking out the window and she said, well, could you at least look at me when I talk to you? And I didn't really know what to say, so I said the only thing that I should say, thought of saying was, well, my ears are on the side of my head. <laughs> well, it was, probably wasn't the appropriate and the right thing to say, but I remember saying that thinking, well, that was really a stupid thing to say. <laughs> and you all can relate to that because we all have done stupid things and said stupid things. And, and sometimes it's just basically out of stupidity. Sometimes it's just out of narrow-mindedness or, or a dogmatic way of thinking about life. And we're just kind of stuck into a, into a way of thinking. I was, uh, I'm on a swim team and I was swimming with this guy and, and uh, he asked me, he says, well, hey, not during swimming, but after at coffee, he says, hey, you know, I've been thinking a lot about um, uh, eternal life. You know, what does the Bible teach about life after death? And, and so I, well, I, gosh, I know a lot about that subject. I taught that at the university and um, I've spoken a lot on that. And so I launched into this brief diatribe on uh, Old Testament understanding of Sheol, the upper Sheol, the lower Sheol, and that's how the Israelites believed in uh, what they believed about eternal life. And one goes to all go to Sheol, but we go to two different sides. And then early Christianity began teaching that there was a major separation and it became Ab uh, uh, Abraham's bosom, which is eternal life, which is heaven. And, and then the lower is Hades, separation from God. And I went through all this stuff. And at the end of it, he just kind of looked at me and he said these words. It was really funny. He just said, well, I'm just not buying what you believe or what they believe. It was kind of this dogmatic, I'm just not going to buy it. And it's like, well, I'm sorry, but that's what, that's what they believe. That's, that's the teachings. And it, it just occurred to me that kind of that's sometimes how we respond. We just respond with this, I'm just not going to believe it, even though it might be true. Or even that may be what you teach, I'm just not going to believe that's what you teach. Like, what's, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with us? Now, the message I heard was entitled, How to Be an Idiot. And I mean this in the most endearing way. And I believe the, uh, the, 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 the speaker also meant in an endearing way about being idiots, imbeciles, and morons. Back in the 19th century, it was a medical term. Actually, Dr. Henry Goddard in the 1912 uh, actually came up with a kind of trying to classify IQs into three different areas. 
And, and the presenter of this talk actually reversed the order, but spoke not from the perspective of a medical, not from a relational perspective, but from a philosophical perspective. This particular speaker had been influenced by a philosopher, a modern day philosopher from Eastern Europe. His name is Slavov Shizik. And Slavov Shizik came up with this concept that we, we interact with the world around us, the symbolic order. Now stay with me for a minute because you have to understand this in order to understand these terms. And then I want to come back, and then I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and help us walk through what I believe to be three stages of the Christian life. We all interact with the world, the symbolic order around us in unique ways. And it includes ourselves, it includes others, and it includes our belief in God. It's the politics that we hold, it's the schools that we go to, the church that we attend, it, it, it's our, the way we relate to one another, it's our worldview. We all have a worldview, and sometimes we're not even aware of our worldview. And your worldview may be very different than your worldview. And, 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 you, and sectarianism comes out of this, sometimes racism and sexism and all sorts of beliefs come out of this particular worldview that you, maybe from your fallen father, your worldview was shaped. I remember talking to someone who said, my father so shaped me, what I believe is what he believed. And, and a worldview gets shaped, and it's the way in which you see the world. And this philosopher talks about the fact that we move now through life in re response or, or, or in, in relation to this symbolic order of this world around us as idiots, and then we move into another category called morons and finally imbeciles. And what the, he means by this is that an idiot is a person who is just naive. They're outside of the symbolic order. They don't live within it. They live outside of it. They're naive to it. And, and to God himself, the big other, as the philosopher calls him, they have no relationship with the God or the big other. The moron is the person that's a conformist, that now conforms, now has entered into a symbolic order and into a particular structure, whether it's religious or social, and they've now bought in and they're conforming to a particular way of thinking. And then there's the imbecile, the final stage, which is the antagonist who works and lives within a cultural understanding, a social structure, but kind of deals badly in it is antagonistic, struggles with it. And this particular philosopher says that eventually we all get to that place and that's where real life change happens, where growth happens. And so our speaker that I'm listening to, this particular podcast says, I was influenced by this philosopher and I decided that this is exactly in the way in which a, a person comes to Christianity. It's a movement from being an idiot to moving into becoming a moron and finally an imbecile. It's the conversion of Christianity. And I thought that's so intriguing. Is there any biblical precedence for this? Well, I found 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 10. And in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 10, the apostle Paul is defending himself against critics. And in 1 Corinthians 4.10, this is what it says. You got to see this because here it is right in the text. It says, our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools. 
In other words, Paul says, I am a fool for Christ. The word fool in Greek is moros, which we get the word moron. Paul identifies with this by saying, I'm a moron for Christ for believing what I believe. In other words, the rest of the world sees me that way, so fine, I'll consider myself a moron for believing in Jesus. And he goes on to say, but you claim to be so wise, we are weak, but you are so powerful, you are honored, but we are ridiculed. Paul is saying is the world sees us from their wisdom as being foolish for believing what we believe. And so there is a bit of a biblical precedence. Now let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Because in 1 Peter, I believe Peter is describing the conversion to Christianity. And I, and I, and I mean to say this not because I want to insult people, because, but because I want to shock people. I want to shock them into really thinking about what Peter's about to say, about what it really means to be a Christian. And so that this is how it goes. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we find our first stage because Peter calls us aliens, doesn't he? He says, you're aliens. And then over in chapter 2, we discover in verse 11, we're aliens and strangers. And what we know about this is that, that it's referring to our status in society. We are strangers in a world of diaspora. One commentator says, people who do not belong to society, who eke out their lives on the periphery of an acceptable society, whose deepest loyalties and inclinations do not line up very well with what matters most in the world in which they live. It's another commentator says, we are resident aliens. So Peter identifies us as these people that are aliens living in the world. We're here, but we're not really here because we're from somewhere else. Because we've become royal priests. Chapter 2 tells us that we have been changed. We're a holy nation, a royal priest. We've been given a new identity. See, Peter deals a lot with identity because identity is important to us. Now, what I want to suggest is that when Peter calls us an alien, he gives us a new identity. And what he assumes is that we understand our old identity. And our old identity is that we weren't aliens, we were alienated. We were alienated from God. You know the song, Amazing Grace, right? Amazing Grace, what is it? It's so powerful. It's, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amazing Grace. You almost have to be shocked at grace to understand your new identity by realizing who you were before you were found. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses to sin. But in verse 4, now you're made alive in Christ Jesus. You were dead, now you're alive. I mean, totally dead, completely dead, alienated. And the philosopher Shizik would actually say that what's going on here from a philosophical, ideological perspective is that if you're an idiot, you're naive. You're always getting it wrong. You don't properly kind of relate to the symbolic dimension around you. And you have no relationship. You're outside. You have no relationship with what he calls the big other. Simply alone in the world. 
from a Greek standpoint, the word idiot comes from idiosyncrasy. And we all know idiosyncrasy is all about our uniqueness, right? But it's, our, it's the privatization of ourselves. It's the aloneness. It's, the, it's who I am compared to everybody else. It's me. And it's separated. Paul reminds us we were once alienated, naive, did not know of God, didn't know of his grace, did not know of his love, did not know of his offering. There was no offering over here. There was no hope. I was eking out a survival based upon what I knew. And it was my worldview. And that's all I knew. And then something happened. You know, I thought of this person who uh, this philosopher calls an idiot. And it, I, I was thinking of the nicest person you know. The nicest person. Not the meanest person, but the nicest person. And I thought of a, an illustration I heard many, many years ago. I've not been able to confirm that it was actually true. But when Bob Hope was living, somebody once asked Bob Hope about Christianity. And he says, this is what was purported to, he said, show me a Christian that does more for humanity than me and I'll believe. I don't know whether that's actually true, but it caught my attention. And what caught my attention was not the fact that Bob Hope was a very powerfully uh, giving person, a humanitarian, gave, gave away his life, you know, worked with the troops and was a great entertainer and did a lot in his life, but it was the pride behind it. It's the pride in our lives. You can be a really good person, but if you're a prideful person, behind all that goodness lies the greatest sin of all, Lewis says. It's the sin of pride. It's the ultimate sin that says, I am better. And we know you cannot come to the next stage until you recognize, first of all, that you're naive, that you're alienated, that you're outside of God's grace and his order of things. And then Peter goes in and moves us to the second stage, which is we become morons, conformists. Notice how Peter says it. In Peter's own words, this is what he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice. Peter explains in one sentence what it means to be a believer in Christ. To become a moron is to become, to become what? To become a conformist to become a conformist to a new system, a new order, a new way of believing things. And here it is. It's God's way of seeing the world. See, Peter invites us into that by calling us what Shizik would say is, are these conformists? And here it is. He's describing what Christ has done for us as we convert to Christianity. First of all, we're born again. Do you see that? We're born again into a living hope, but, but we're born again. It's the only place that Peter will use, or any other New Testament, will use this Greek word. It's a particular use of being born again. 
because it's not looking at being born again from the perspective of like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus is confronted with, with the with Jesus and realizes Jesus is telling him, you've got you to be born again, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus can't understand how to be born a second time, how to go into your mother's womb and actually be born a second time. It's impossible. You can't do that. He's looking at it from the perspective of the mother giving birth. Peter is referring to it from the perspective of the father. Because the father, he's the one who gives infuses divine life into the believer. He is the infusion of divine life. And the concept of being born again is to be infused with the Father's divine power and divine life. That's what it means to be converted to Christianity. We receive that. I remember talking on uh, John chapter 3 at a conference I was at out in the desert. We were all riding motorcycles called the Dirt Conference for Hume Lake, dudes in rugged terrain. About 400 men, their sons, and I brought Theo, my son, and, and I brought Colin Lancaster, another young man that uh, um, I have known for many years, and we brought our motorcycles and had a great weekend, and I spoke four times to the men, and we were all out in the desert with our RVs and motorcycles, and uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. And I spoke on John 3 one, one evening, and I talked about this idea of being born again, that Nicodemus had lived his life, his whole life, from one perspective and one perspective only. He had a religious structure for his life. And Jesus says it's not going to work anymore. Have you ever come to a place in your life where you realize the structure that you have built for your understanding of life and God doesn't work anymore? And you need to be born again. And that's what Jesus says. You need, to, you need to end that and begin something new. Now, what Peter is saying, and oh, by the way, what I did that weekend, I spoke on it. And then I talked about this idea of infusion of divine love that God puts into our hearts. I brought up my, the, the two boys that I brought, my son and Colin, and I spoke words of affirmation into their lives on stage. I affirmed them. There's nothing like the words of an affirming father to speak into the heart of a son or daughter. It's an infusion of life. It is an infusion of power. It is an infusion of what they need for the rest of their life to live a powerful and fruitful life. That's what a father is able to do. That's what God does in our lives. He has infused that into us. That's why I want to be a moron. I want to be a conformist to that kind of a father because of what he's done. But notice, second of all, notice it says that we were been born again into a living hope and have this, this eternal inheritance, a living hope. It's not a short-lived hope. It's not I hope it happens and it doesn't happen and I get discouraged. It's I'm holding out with a living hope for something greater. It's alive it's a, it's a hope that stays alive and will continue to stay alive for the rest of my life. Why? Because it's an assured conviction that God will triumph in your life. It's absolute certainty that you know the outcome. You know the outcome of this life. It's an outcome that gives you hope for this life because you know you have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. I was thinking of this from the perspective of even watching a movie or a TV show. We used to love watching 24, you know, Jack Bauer. And he'd run around, 
you know, and solve terrorist issues in the United States and, and, uh, and he'd use some really strange tactics and he would be tortured and beaten and, and shot at. But the one thing I always knew is that he would never die because he couldn't die because there wouldn't be another episode. So no matter what they did to Jack Bauer, I knew he was gonna live to the next episode. So I live with that understanding that I knew the ending. That's really different from when you're watching a movie for the first time and you don't know and the protagonist is at the point of death and you're going, they don't deserve to die. This is not, this is not the way I want the movie to end. I want this movie to end differently. And you don't know how it's gonna end. A living hope and an inheritance that is imperishable is knowing the end, knowing what is coming, knowing that all that God has for you is stored up that you get to live off of now. An infusion of divine power and affirmation from God and a living hope. And then finally it says also, you are protected by the power of God. What's it mean to be protected? Here's what it means. It means literally to be in a, inside of four walls protected by a garrison from anything outside that can harm you. So any kind of evil, any kind of roaring lion that seeks to devour you, as Peter describes the evil one, who wants to go after you, you are protected by a garrison. You're in this place where these walls protect you. You are shielded in this life from the evil one nailing you. But there's also a second level of protection, and that is a protection from yourself a protection of abandoning your faith, and a protection from walking away from what you know to be true. And you've been there, I know you've been there, wondering, is it worth it? Should I keep going? Is, should I continue to pursue this? And you're on a giant rubber band, according to 1 Peter. And this rubber band's pulling you back every time you want to leave. You are guarded from that. And then it says... Up in verse 2, that all this has happened by the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. By the way, foreknowledge of God simply means God chose you. He chose you. He knew in advance. And yet you made a decision to step over the line and give your life to Christ. You did that. Yes, you did. It's a complicated subject. It's called election, the doctrine of election. And people have been debating this, theologians are debating, is it election, is it free will? How does it work together? And really, they work together. But the one thing that I understand is because of God's mercy, God is the one who did the first step. He made the first step in our lives. He chose us, and then we responded. And, and, and the reason why it goes that way is so that there's nothing in me that could be frightful that says, I earned it. The minute you think you earned it, you're living out a different kind of faith, a faith of works. And you're always going to be trying to please God. But if you come to God as amazing grace and realize he chose you, not because you're worth it or worthy or you've earned it, but because he loves you, he created you and wants you then it's a different kind of faith. And now, in this moronic stage of conformity to a new world order, a new way of seeing things, I want to obey Jesus, verse 2. I want to obey him. I want to, I want, I want to conform to Jesus and to what he... I, I'm drawn to it because of what God has done for me. But there's also... 
a final stage. And the final stage is the imbecile stage, according to this philosopher, and according to the speaker that I heard, in conversion, we convert to a place and we move and transition to finally becoming imbeciles, which is which 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 the philosopher describes as antagonists. It's an antagonist. And I call it healthy antagonism, because notice what happens. We rejoice because of what's happened, even though Peter says, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith may be more precious than gold. Do you see that? Which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though we haven't seen him, we love him. You haven't seen him, but you love him. Why? Because your faith has been tested by fire. The third stage I believe, of the Christian life is moving from a naivety of not having a relationship with God alienated from him, moving into a place of conformity where you're now beginning to be conformed to the image of Christ because of what Christ has done in you, to a place of healthy antagonism through the work, uh, working out of the trials and difficulties of your life. And that's the third stage. It's the imbecile stage. It's it's one, it's one sense we need to look back at the moronic stage to see what is true of us in order to endure the brutal reality of life and trials and difficulties of this life. Christians are made to sorrow by various tests, is what Peter is saying, literally. They're made to sorrow by various, various tests. This is a realistic picture of life. What if my life turning out exactly the way I wanted it to doesn't equal loving God. Kate Merrick wrote those words. She lost her child many years ago. They started reality, she and her husband, many years ago. And after losing a child, she wrote those words. What if my life turning out exactly the way I wanted it to doesn't equal God loving me? We flinch at the slightest prospect of discomfort. We've been conditioned to expect ease as a sign of God's blessing. Maybe abundant life is different than what we thought. Dorothy Sayers, I love reading Dorothy Sayers. She wrote a book called Crisis and Chaos. And she says, oh, it's so disastrous. What a disastrous idea that Christianity is otherworldly, unreal, idealistic kind of religion that suggests that we shall be happy because we're good. If not, it will all be made up to us in the next, next existence. It'll all work out just fine, but be good because you'll get paid dividends for being good. She says, on the contrary, it is fiercely and even harshly realistic, insisting that the kingdom of heaven can never be obtained in this world except by unceasing toil and struggle and vigilance that even we cannot be good and happy, but there are certain eternal achievements that make even happiness look like trash. So she suggests that happiness has become the one thing in our lives that really actually isn't Christianity. And what we need to do is literally hogtie it and throw it into the depth of the sea. Because suffering purifies us. See, Peter uses the word dokimatso. It means to be approved after a trial. 
It's like gold going through the furnace, through the heat, is purified. And it can't be gold until it's purified. Your faith is untested until you endure something. And then your faith gets tested and it comes out actually as real faith or no faith at all. Either it gets burned up and you really had no faith at all, or you now have a real faith and it's been tested and it's something you can rely on. And that's the kind of faith that an imbecile has. But it takes a sense of struggle. It takes what I call healthy antagonism. Coming back to this word imbecile, it actually comes from bisile, which means a stick. An imbecile is one without a stick. It's a person who feels like they need the stick, but they don't have the stick, but they want the stick, but they're working or interacting badly with the stick, the stick being the big other, God. It's the person who recognizes they have God, but sometimes they don't have God. They need God, but they're interacting badly with God. Something's going on in the equation. Something more difficult, more profound is being worked out in their life where they're really struggling and there's a healthy antagonism with God, where are you? What's going on? Why is this happening? I'm reminded of the story in Genesis chapter 32 of Jacob. Jacob, as you know, is the grandson of Abram. Abraham, the father of Israel, right? Comes from Ur, goes to Canaan. God promises a big nation, a, a people that will come from Abram and Sarah. And Isaac comes and Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to the 12 sons of Israel, and the nation is born. Now, Jacob has a problem. Jacob deceived his brother Esau, stole his birthright, ran away from Canaan, and has been running from himself ever since. And in chapter 32, decides, I'm going to make it right with Esau, whether he kills me or not, I'm coming back. I want to get right. I want to get things squared up with me and God and my brother and this nation. And Esau comes back, and the night before he goes to his brother, he walks over to a Jabbok River, and he spends the night out, and a man shows up. And, and the text tells us, we don't know who it is, probably an angel. Could be, it was probably God sent in a human form. And what does Jacob do? He doesn't offer coffee. He doesn't sit, ha, sit down and have a conversation with him. He takes him to the ground. He wrestles him. I was thinking of wrestle holds, and I thought of a full Nelson. Could you imagine God showing up in your life and you put him in a full Nelson? Like, what is going on there? Isn't that the exact opposite of the way in which we would respond and react to God? I, I, I went a little deeper and looked in the World Federation of Wrestling, and there's, all, there's like a hundred different kinds of holds. It's hilarious. It's a whole movement here. There's the Texas uh, cloverleaf, the, the Boston crab, the leaping clothesline, the fisherman buster, and the tombstone pile driver. So Jacob takes this man of God, this man sent by God, and puts him in the tombstone pile driver position. And then because he's wrestling with God or an angel, he gets taken down and slammed, a total body slam, and his socket comes out, right? Just gets dislocated. He gets injured, deeply injured, and he's now broken. And he says, who are you? Who are you? What is going on here? And Jacob realizes he's wrestled with God. It says in Genesis chapter 32, I have wrestled with God. And God blesses him because he breaks him 
he finally comes to a place in his life where he truly understands what it means to bring all that I have before God and to submit to God. And he was broken there, broken. But yet he comes out and it says in this passage that I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. And so he names the place Penuel. He was in, in uh, this amazing place as he walked out limping on his thigh. Here's the point. I think what is happening at this stage of your life is that you are really finally coming to terms with what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. It's a healthy antagonism where there's some pushback. Ever been to that place? Larry Crabb wrote an amazing book and I ordered about 10 copies. I'm giving it to, uh, to the staff and to my, some of my leaders to read. It's called The Real Church. And in The Real Church, he says, you know, I've really grown tired of churches because I don't feel like churches are going deep enough today. They're not dealing with real issues, the people, the real sins, the real struggles. And he says, they're drawing crowds and shrinking Christians. And then he says these words, our faith develops most strongly and God is glorified most fully when we feel only his absence. The exact opposite of what you might think. You would think that God's presence would be greater in a place of trial. The longer you've walked with God, the greater his presence. And yet sometimes what he's doing early in your life is different than what he's doing later in your life. Early in life, he's giving you a lot of clues. And he's drawing you out. He's keeping you close. And then something really traumatic hits. And then what's happening? He distanced himself. It's Job 23. Oh, Lord, I want to plead my case, but I can't find you, Job says. And so Crab says this. In his absence, when every trace of his presence vanishes and our resolve to trust continues, we keep on. We keep on going. We keep on going deeper. Crab cites Nietzsche, who calls out the wild dog's barking. It was a term that Nietzsche used for the inner self-struggling, the self-absorbed desires within us that need to be wrestled with that we need to bring before God, that those distress, distresses now come into a wrestling match with the scandalous love of God, even when we get it wrong in sin and we head for the hills. And God meets us in our weakness, in our struggles. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of, Larry Crabb says. It's a faith that's tested by fire. And it draws us closer. And so I wrote four things that you might do. You might experiment with these as we, as we close this morning. And maybe you're in this stage. And I would say, number one, identify some unrealistic perspectives that you have. I mean, you got to come to terms with what your worldview looks like. Whether it comes from your dad or whether it comes from a church or whether it comes from somebody that's hurt you deeply, you have created a worldview and an understanding of God and you need to come to understanding with that and understanding of on the unrealistic perspectives that you might be carrying with God. If I do this, God does that. See, it's a, it's a give and take. Is it? Is that what grace is about? I mean, you've got to identify it. 
Second, acknowledge what you're going through honestly with God and enter into the struggle. Have it out. It's okay to have it out with God. I have finally, I think, come to a fi this final season in my life where I feel like I'm really having it out with God. It's been the hardest year of my life. I don't understand everything that he's doing in my life. I don't understand my health issues. I don't know why I'm still struggling. But I am in the place I'm at, and I'm not going to just placate it. I'm not going to cover it over. I'm not going to deny it. I'm going to wrestle with God over this. And I know something good's going to come out of it. A deeper, more mature faith. A faith tested by fire. I can't understand. I don't want to go through it. You don't either. Nobody does. And then third, I wrote down, ask God to teach you to be present with you. So ask him, Lord, I'm shutting up. What are you teaching me? Just shut up and let God speak to you. Just be quiet. And finally, get with friends and be real and raw and honest. You need people. You need people in your life. You need true confidants that will walk with you. You need that. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. So as we close this morning, we come to the table. Do not be dismayed. Christians who live the victorious life press deeper into their faith, which includes struggles, trials, and difficulties. The option is boredom. Really, it's boredom. Believe me, it's a lesser desire. See, we've exchanged a lesser desire for a greater desire. That's what we've done. And the lesser desire is happiness and leisure and being literally amused at ourselves and our things. No longer alone, no longer an idiot, I'm still a moron, desiring to conform to this wild and crazy and utterly irresistible Jesus, and now pressing into the imbecile stage of wrestling with God over the real issues of my life my sin, my fears, my rebellion, and literally getting body slammed onto the floor until something breaks. Well, Father, there is no, no greater end result than to be tested by fire to know that my faith is real. And I want that. I really do. I want a real faith. I don't want a faith that I confess that I have to others. I don't want a faith that I'm able to kind of um, walk around with that looks good on the outside. I want a true test of faith. And yet I realize a lot of work has to be done. And maybe you're with me on this. So, Father, we pray together. Lead us to a place, Father, of understanding how we can enter into a, a new, healthy, antagonistic relationship with you where we maintain our, our fidelity with you, but, but we be honest. We're honest with our struggles. We're true to who we are, and you are true to who you are. So as we come to the table this, this morning, we recognize the fact that we come and we 
we receive the bread and the juice that represents the body and the blood of Christ who was shed for us, the ultimate sacrifice to make it even possible for us to grow in our faith. So Jesus, we come and acknowledge that. We pray a blessing over the elements that they represent you as we take them. We receive suffering and we receive your sacrifice in Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready,